All right, our first scripture reading this morning is from the 15th chapter of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, found on page 166 of the New Testament of your Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 30 through 50. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, for what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of, a moon, of the moon and another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a physical body. It is raised as a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first. It is the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. It is so great to have the sanctuary choir back after their brief break. Thank you. Yeah, you can give them a round of applause, make them feel I was worth it. And if you want to uh, uh, join the balcony crew well out of the focus of the minister's uh, sight lines, uh, which gives you all kinds of opportunity during worship, please talk to Jason, as uh, he would be more than happy to welcome you into our sanctuary choir. Luke 6. 27 to 38. Jesus continues the Sermon on the Plain with these words. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also. And from anyone who takes your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend, 
from only those whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you receive. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. How strange these words are to our ears, O Lord. They are very different from what we have been taught. Help us hear your words, for you bring a message counter to all the world's noise, even the message of eternal life. Amen. Years ago, my mother and I were in a Christian bookstore, and she was picking up some Sunday school materials, and I was just wandering around looking for something that I might be able to take home. My mother taught 8th grade girls Sunday school, and my father taught 6th grade boys. In addition, my mom regularly taught a woman's Bible study, so it was not uncommon for us to be wandering through the Grace College of the Bible bookstore in Omaha to check out the latest commentaries and curricula and learning instruments. And while she was looking for age-appropriate study guides and worksheets, I'd wander over to find some souvenir, maybe a toy or a trinket. Now, because it was a Christian bookstore, anything that I picked up had a Bible verse or Christianly saying stamped into the plastic of it. A small magnifying viewer emblazoned with the words, Dare to be a Daniel, and when you look through the lens and hold it up to the light, you'd see sleeping lions in a lion's den. Or uh, you would end up with one of those puzzles that has a single empty space, and you slide the other pieces around, and you'd have to slide it around to get all the Ten Commandments in the right order. And even in a Christian bookstore, I knew that there were limits. There was a price point. It had to be low, so the Lord's Prayer wooden puzzle priced at over $4 was clearly out of the question. For reasons of nonviolence, my mother would never buy me the future King David slingshot set <laughs> that came with a target that had Goliath's face on it. Never, never got that. On this particular occasion, I was about five or six years old, and as my mother perused the latest study guides for the Gospel of John, I was searching for my prize, and I found it. It wasn't in the toy section. No, this was located in the household decorations aisle, and it was perfect. And I know that it was slightly above the prescribed budget, but I just had to have it. I took one of the boxes, the display was on top and the boxes were underneath, and so I took one of the boxes and ran it over to my mother and begged her to buy it for me. My mother slid it out of the box and found a metal trivet into which had been forged the words of the golden rule. She was a bit confused and pointed out that it was kind of expensive. It was almost $6, but I was insistent. And as the only content of the item was the verse Luke 6:31, 
She agreed that it would be a good verse for me to hang in the bedroom. She relented, and I went home extremely happy. I grabbed a small piece of cardboard and a magic marker when I got home and some tape because my newly acquired trivet needed some small modification before it could be hung. I also grabbed a hammer and a small nail out of the junk drawer in the kitchen and ran upstairs to the bedroom that I shared with my two brothers. Luke 6:31. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's perhaps the most memorized verse of the Bible. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So I completed my task, hung my wall art, and came downstairs quite pleased with myself and plopped down in front of the TV to watch a syndicated episode of My Favorite Martian. My mother was intrigued, and so she stopped preparing supper and went upstairs to the bedroom. And while I watched the hijinks of Marvin, she was upstairs and then began to laugh. I was concerned. I didn't mean to be funny. But she found it so. I had hung the trivet on the wall next to my brother Bruce's bottom bunk bed. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Except I had taken the cardboard and the magic marker and the scotch tape and modified it to say, do unto brothers as you would have them do unto you. When my dad got home, she told him to go upstairs and to look uh, on the wall under the lower bunk. He too was amused but immediately grabbed some spackle and gave me an in-service on how to put walls into plaster without cracking them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule, and it's perfect for everybody else. Here in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus dispenses the simple rubric for civil living. It seems so reasonable in contact. Treat others the way that you would like to be treated, but it becomes significantly more troubling in context. The context is this, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other. From anyone who takes your coat, don't forbid them to take your shirt. If someone's begging, give to them. If somebody takes your goods, don't get them back. Last Sunday, I said that self-reliance is not a scriptural virtue. And today, it gets even more uncomfortable because neither is revenge. Neither is getting even. This is not a scriptural virtue. In fact, these verses that parallel the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew imply that even self-defense has no real place among those seeking mercy from our heavenly dad, our dad in heaven. Love your enemies, taught Jesus. Now, it is said that that is the only teaching of Jesus that does not have a direct parallel in the Hebrew Scripture prophets. There are parallels to that phrase in wisdom literature, and in the Pentateuch. In Exodus 23, 4 and 5, it says, If you meet your enemy's ox or ass going astray, you should bring it back to him. If you see an ass of the one who hates you, who is lying under a burden, you shall refrain from leaving him, and you shall help lift it up. 
even your enemy's livestock should be treated with kindness and humanitarian attention. Likewise, Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice when your enemy fails and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. And also from Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Now these verses commend civil behavior and treatment towards opponents. Don't be happy to watch your enemies suffer. But they stop significantly short of saying, and love them. That is only out of Christ's mouth. I find it interesting that when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, the question was, who's my neighbor? But when Jesus said, love your enemies, nobody said, well, who's my enemy? Folks kind of already knew who he was talking about. We know our enemies, and to our shame, we probably know our enemies better than we know our neighbors. 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche completely rejected Christianity because of this principle. This admonition to love your enemies, he thought, was going to be the destruction of the human race. Nietzsche believed that the feeble-minded, the weak, the inferior, the foolish, they were all enemies of the Ubermensch. And they're unworthy of compassion or coddling. If humankind was going to advance into a glorious and triumphant future, then they needed to be cast aside, wrote Nietzsche. I must confess that it frightens me that in our own American political discourse, there are those who claim the title Christian, but openly mock Jesus' command to turn the other cheek. They claim that it's a sign of weakness that will destroy the greatness that is America. And in an arena of blind rage sycophants, the followers all scream hurrah at the invitation to enact hatred and revenge while still claiming Christ's name. They are to me, and this is the insidious power of evil that worms its darkness and pervasive power into my own heart because my rage against their heresy, they become to me my enemies. And what am I supposed to do about that? This past week, I received a chastening email in response to my Monday music. I have to tell you that I even like critical emails because it indicates to me that at least somebody read what I wrote, favorable or unfavorable. What's the old line? The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. In my Monday Musing this past week, I expressed my disgust about how news feeds offer a steady diet of malcontents, whack jobs, and other blathering fools, substituting idiocy for civil discourse. The email to me was simple, and it was straightforward. I quote, Someone once told me that psychopathic, paranoid, lunatic malcontents were also children of God. Perhaps we need to listen and respect those with whom we do not agree. Could be 
we might learn something. Ouch. See, love your enemies is great advice for our enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto to you. Those are wise words, but therefore, my brother, not me. It begins with this embracing of the fallibility of all flesh. The Apostle Paul wrote in our epistle lesson, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. The orientation of Christ's command to love both neighbor and enemy begins with owning the corruptibility of all human flesh, the corruptibility of my flesh. Christ's command only makes sense if I count myself among the unredeemed. In judging others, I place myself outside of the ring of human frailty, looking back in because I'm wiser than or greater than or more informed than. And I sit in the judgment seat, and when I say it's okay for the lesser to lose out, then I have stepped outside of the realm of those for whom God offers grace. A scale of judgment with which I do not want God to look at me. What did Jesus say? Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Do not condemn, you won't be condemned. Forgive, you'll be forgiven. Give, it'll be given to you. Love your enemies, commanded Jesus. Who is my enemy? Who is working against my best interest, my benefit, my strength, my hope? Who is my enemy? More often than not, turns out to be me. Amen.